Happy Sabbath, friends. <laughs> we are going to be continuing in our series on Colossians um, this Sabbath. And uh, unfortunately, I haven't been able to be with you guys a lot of these Sabbaths that you've been going through Colossians because I've been, you know, uh, somewhere else in the church or I'll be downstairs uh, doing children's church, which, by the way, is a lot of fun. You guys should swing by sometime and see what we're doing because we're having a blast down there. And uh, sometimes when we sing, actually, down there with the kids, I tell them, you know, you're supposed to s sing at levels so that, uh, volume levels, so that the people upstairs will uh, hear you and we're going to have noise complaints, you know, and the kids like that and they just sing louder. But we have a great time down there. Our theme is Gone Fishing and so uh, we have like a beautiful room set up and we do a lot of fish themed coloring sheets and games and things like that. But uh, I'm really happy to be with you here this Sabbath, and uh, we're going to open up with having a quick word of prayer. So let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and I uh, pray, Lord, that you would be with us here as uh, we worship and get to know you better. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be in this place. Um, being at church, it's truly a special thing where we can come together and be a community and uh, thrive uh, in the body of Christ. So thank you so much, and uh, I pray that you would be with us this Sabbath and that you would help us to find our rest in you. So we're going to be going through Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to be starting with verses 6 and 7. And if you want, you can open in your Bibles to read from your own Bible, or you can look at the screen. I have it pulled up here for you if you'd like to just uh, read off of that. And I'm going to flip there in my own Bible quickly. And we're going to start off in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Reading verse 7 as well. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Well, there's a lot to unpack in these two verses. But starting off right at the beginning, it says, As you therefore have received Jesus... So now, walk in him. So walk in him. How many of you believe that when, G when Jesus was here on this earth, that he kept the law? That he, collect that he, that he kept the law and uh, that he was not faulted in one point? How many of you believe that, right? We believe that Jesus kept the law perfectly. And even though some men may have claimed to keep the law perfectly, we know that none of us have right? We know that none of us have, but Jesus did keep the law. And how many uh, of you have ever had an experience where someone maybe is keeping the law outwardly, but they're not keeping it inwardly? Or how many of you have experienced that yourself, right? Outwardly, it appears that you're keeping, right, the law, or you're keeping a, one of the Ten Commandments, but then inwardly, you're not. I know that when I was a kid, right, I mean, Sabbath, when we talk about keeping the Sabbath, I was outwardly keeping the Sabbath, right? But as a child, I was just watching the clock, waiting for it to end, right? And we see this a lot with our young people, right? I actually remember that I liked, um, I like winter better than summer because Saturday night would come faster, right? And I don't know, and really it's the same amount of time either way you look at it, but for some reason, winters just seem better to me. <laughs> right? And so even though I was, you know, not necessarily breaking the Sabbath, right? I was not really worshiping him. I wasn't resting in Jesus. 
But Jesus kept the Sabbath, and he kept the law, right? And now we are given the opportunity to walk in him. We're given the opportunity to essentially keep the law because we're doing it through him, something that wouldn't have been possible except for, right, the salvation that he provides and this opportunity to be one with, with him. So going on now in the verse, and actually going on to verse chapter 7, um, Paul says, rooted and built up in him. Let me just see if my clicker is working here. Now, when I read this verse, I thought about how we hardly ever bury a seed or we bury a bulb and we hope that that's the last that we see of it, right? Actually, it's the exact opposite. When we plant a seed or when we plant a bulb, we're really, really excited for that moment that it sprouts and it becomes something. I know that when COVID first hit, obviously everyone was really frightened at first. Uh, most were, at least. I think I can speak for the majority there. We didn't really know what COVID was and it was a little scary. But I remember that when we were cooped up um, inside our house, um, we realized that all of a sudden we were going to have the opportunity to do some things that we wouldn't normally be able to do, like start a garden. And so actually, um, when COVID hit first in the spring of 2020, right? It's been so long. It's crazy, right? When it first hit, we realized we were able to start a garden. And I hadn't had a successful garden since I was very, very young. Uh, so we actually actually got to invest a lot of time and energy into like keeping the garden, you know, weed free and things like that. And we had so many awesome vegetables. And uh, it reminded me a lot of when I was a kid, because when I was a kid, I lived in the Manistee National Forest. And we had a church member that lived in Irons, Michigan, which is just south of Manistee. And <clears throat> uh, this, uh, this uh, man's name was Mr. Milton. That was his name. And he uh, gave us a small plot of land on his farm where we could have our own garden, because we didn't really have a place where we lived. And so um, I remember one summer, my parents took me to the store. We bought some seeds. They let us kids pick out some of the things that we wanted to try to grow. And I remember that I picked pumpkins. So I picked pumpkins, and these aren't the pumpkins that I grew. But honestly, the pumpkins that I grew looked better than these, and these look great, right? My pumpkins did so well. I've never had so much success with growing something. I mean, the vines just came up so strong, and the blossoms were so beautiful, and the blossoms turned into beautiful pumpkins. And when harvest time came, I remember I was so, so excited to bring those pumpkins home. And we loaded them into our sedan, and, you know, probably sparks flying behind us because we had a lot of pumpkins in there, and they were huge. And we brought them to our house, and I remember it was like a Friday night. My parents, like, scooped out the seeds. They put them on a tray, put some oil on the seeds and some, you know, sea salt. And they would bake them in the oven, and we would have roasted pumpkin seeds. And I don't even remember as a kid if I even liked how they tasted, but at the same time, I really liked how they tasted because it was something that I grew out of the ground, right? When you make something yourself and when you grow something yourself, I mean, I probably just would have bit into the, one of these pumpkins raw as an eight-year-old. I would have thought it was amazing, right? Because I grew it. I, it was so cool for me, right? Now, when we also, when we talk about roots and we talk about growing, I think of my uh, new, I wouldn't call it an obsession yet. I would just say a new thing I'm doing. It's uh, collecting you know, plants, and I, I've been uh, kind of slowly building up my army of plants in my living room. Uh, this is one that I've got recently. This is a Pachira money tree. I don't think that's actually the scientific name for it, but uh, it's a beautiful plant, and I was really excited uh, when I first brought this plant home. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Look what they did kind of with the, with the, with the roots, with the trunk. They kind of twisted it and braided it. It's really neat, and 
sometimes I have these big windows in the front of my house. And so when the sun shines through, sometimes I'll collect all my plants and I'll just like put them in the patch of sun. You know, so they're all like sitting in the middle of, middle of my living room. And I kind of look at my plants like lovingly and I, I think, man, they look so comfortable and cozy in the sun. I kind of just want to be a plant. <laughs> and so I just will lay down in and amongst my plants and I'll just take a nice little nap. Of course, you know, the opportunity for this is uh, not, I don't get a, much of a chance to do this. Usually it's on Sabbath or Sunday, my day off. But sometimes I'll just go there and I'll fall asleep in and amongst my plants right, in that patch of sun. Good thing my face lotion has SPF in it, honestly, because sometimes I get stuck there a little longer than I should be. Uh, but um, now here's the thing, right? Paul is saying in this verse, in verse 7, rooted, be rooted and built up in him. And I think something really important to realize is that the richest soil, friends, the richest soil that you can occupy as a Christian is the soil, the rich, rich soil of Jesus Christ and his gospel, right? The rich, rich soil of Jesus Christ. But if you have any of the background, if you know some of the background of what was happening, happening in the Colossian church, you'll know, right, that there were people coming in, false teachers, false preachers coming in and trying to supplement, right, supplement this precious soil with their own ideas of what truth was. And really what they were do and doing in essence is devaluing Christ, right? devaluing that precious, full, complete gift that is brought to the table and offered to you, right? And so these preachers coming in saying to reach this extra level of spiritual attainment, right? You need to do this. And so, and I believe Paul here is trying to communicate this idea, right? The, the richest soil that you can occupy is the soil where you first met Jesus, right? You first met Jesus, and now you, you're rooted in him. Now, what? Now, be built up in him, or grow in him. But here we have these people, right, that are coming into the Colossian church, and they're attempting, kind of like you see in this picture, right? They're attempting to transplant these Christians, and I'm sure some of them are baby Christians, right? Some of these Christians pick them up and transplant them into a different soil, different soil. And we have to uh, look at the world around us today and apply this to what we see, right? Are there certain groups, certain denominations that do this very thing, right? That, uh, for instance, right, we see groups that say, um, you know, the cross of Christ offers you salvation, um, but, um, it's really important that you observe the sacraments of the church to attain a higher spiritual enlightenment or level, right? Or we can look at other groups, right, that believe, right, that you're baptized into a saving relationship with Jesus, but then there is some type of extra spiritual baptism that also you need to go through so that you can, right, reach a higher spiritual level, right? And that would be like something like the gift of tongues. Everyone needs to have the gift of tongues and attain this new higher spiritual level of existing, right? And so we see people, right, trying to transplant people, taking someone that has been planted in the deep, rich soil of Jesus and planted into something that is not quite so nutritious, right? 
And I think it's really important, right, when we look at these things, that we always look to apply those, these concepts and these ideas to ourselves, right? When have we seen in Adventism, when have we seen this in Adventism, right? When have we um, witnessed or experienced times where it seems like someone is planted in that rich, rich soil, but then they're taken out by individuals and transplanted into the soil of legalism? Or when, right, have we seen people that are taken out of the soil and transplanted into the soil of cheap grace, right? Have you witnessed that before? Is this something, right, that we experience, right? Is this something that maybe even we've been a part of, right? So, be rooted in Jesus. In verse 6, it says, receive Jesus Christ, so now walk in him, right? Now you've been rooted in him. Be built up in him. The very soil in which you were planted can sustain you in your growth. And I think that Paul here is also really just protecting us as individuals, right? And he's looking out for, you know, the Colossians church, right? Kind of like a shepherd, right? Watches out for his sheep. You know, um, some of the um, saddest things that have taken place in earth's history have been because men have stepped in and claimed to hold the keys to the kingdom, right? And it is through me and my spiritual understanding, this new revelation, right, that you can continue to grow up into Christ, right? But Paul rejects these claims and states clearly that the very place where you were rooted and planted, you can now continue to grow in. And that is the richest soil that you as a believer can occupy. All right, so continuing on now, and I don't know if you guys noticed, but in these two verses, in verses 6 and 7, there's basically like three exhortations or things that Paul is saying, right? First, he says, you've received Jesus, so walk in him. You've been rooted, now be built up or grow in him. And then it says, establish in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Okay, and um, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now, gratitude and thanksgiving are really important part of the Christian experience. And I would say that a, um, uh, a hallmark of the Spirit being in someone's life is them continually having, continually having a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness, right? Um, the Christian rejoicing in this blessing of a thankful heart will have his eyes fixed upon the right person and the right place, Christ at God's right hand. He cannot be taken up with himself without being immediately reminded that everything he possesses is the gift of God. Basically realizing the only thing that you can offer to God that you're conjuring up yourself is just gratitude, right? This is a sign of a person that is filled with the Spirit of God, right? This is a um, theologian, R.C. Lucas, going on now to, I believe this is Desire of Ages, Desire of ages, let the repenting sinner fix his eyes upon the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And by beholding, he becomes changed. His fear is turned to joy, his doubts to hope. Gratitude, right? Gratitude springs up. The stony heart is broken. Maybe a reference there, right, to Ezekiel 36, 26. A tide of love sweeps into the soul. Christ is in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life, right? Reminds us of the woman at the well. When we see Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, working to save the lost, slighted, scorned, derided, driven from city to city till his mission was accomplished, when we behold him in Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood and on the cross dying in agony, when we see this, self 
will no longer clamor to be recognized. Looking unto Jesus, we should be ashamed of our coldness, our lethargy, and our self-seeking. We shall be willing to be anything or nothing so that we may do heart service for the master. We shall rejoice to bear the cross after Jesus, to endure trial, shame, or persecution for his dear sake. The last part of verse 7 talks a little bit about um, abounding in him with thanksgiving, right? Uh, A sign of a Christian, a sign of a Christian that's filled with the Spirit of God is someone that is so thankful and grateful for that rich soil that they have already been planted in, right? And I think that it's possible here that Paul is trying to draw a contrast, right? A contrast between these false teachers, right, that come in, right, and present these doctrines and ideas, really, that just come down to self-exaltation, right? You follow what I'm teaching, and you will receive spiritual enlightenment. Kind of sounds like something else, right? Kind of sounds like the Garden of Eden a little bit with Eve and the serpent, right? And Paul, right, is drawing a contrast between that, between that self-seeking and what the Christian experiences when the Spirit is living within him, which is gratitude, thanksgiving. And uh, I uh, really uh, think that um, it's really cool to just think about people in your own life, right? Uh, How many of you know someone, right, that is just abounding with thanksgiving, and they are so thankful for the goodness of God that it's just apparent, right, in everything they do on a daily basis, right? I think that that is uh, kind of a, a beautiful thing to witness, is it not? And it's one of the greatest testimonies, right, that we can offer the world. <clears throat> so, going on to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And, you know, are you really hearing a sermon from someone fresh out of seminary or fresh out of school if they don't bring out a little Greek, right? (laughs) If they don't bring out a little Greek. Now, this word cheat, and I think that actually this word cheat uh, in verse 8 is actually really great. Uh, I really, really like how it reads. And many versions probably say cheat. Um, This word is uh, in the Greek originally, um, sulagagon. Sulagagon. And sulagagon could also be translated as taking captive or to kidnap, right? So this verse, if we go back, could also be read as, beware lest anyone kidnap you or steal you away or take you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to the principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now, when I think of one of the greatest deceptions, right, that we see in history books, we think of like the Trojan horse, right? There's a war being fought, you know, between the Greeks and the Trojans, and uh, the Greeks just can't get into the city of Troy, right? And so they apparently, right, seemingly give up, and they build the people of Troy, the city of Troy, this little, uh, I guess, going away present. Um, Now, this horse, right, um, is brought up to the city gates, and it seems that the Greeks have left. It seems that the Greeks have left. And so, the people of Troy, believing that the war is over, believing that the battle has been won, right? They bring this gift, right, into their city, and they party, and they dance, and they have a great time, right? Because they were able to withstand this uh, massive army, right? And then, though, little did they know that at night time, uh, 
there's, um, there's actually soldiers, right, hidden in this horse, and they uh, come out at nighttime, and then they go, and they unlock the city gates, and the city just falls, right, in one night, right? I mean, the invading army comes in, and the city of Troy falls, right? And I'll tell you, recently, I actually had a kind of a Trojan horse experience. Um, now, um, when we were talking about deception and not, know, not knowing what's going on, um, Basically, um, recently I was, not too recently, but not too long ago, I was given a couch. And, you know, uh, moving into a house, you know, there's a lot of space to fill. And so I was really happy to be able to have an extra piece of furniture, you know. So they bring in the couch, and um, it's there in my living room. And one day I start to notice when I'm going through my cupboards, right, that a lot of my dry goods have been invaded. And... So I'm like, man, my beans are all chewed up and my rice. And then even like my cupboards were being gnawed at. And I was like, I think I have mice in my house. And then the next day I'm uh, looking at this cloud couch more closely and I open it up. I open it up and it's actually, there's a bed. It was like one of those that you pull out, turns into a bed, right? And I open it up and there's a mouse nest in there. Basically some mice had come into my house via Trojan horse, via Trojan um couch, and they were now living in my house. They were living in the couch, and now they had a, a much bigger area to operate with lots more food. And so these guys, I started seeing them running around my house at night. I mean, they would just, you know, run along the corners of the house, you know, and you see just a shadow, and they zip by, you know. But they just started to get a little bit too bold, you know, and uh, telltale signs of them uh, living in my house began to be left, um, you know, in places that were very close to me, like on my nightstand. And we're you know, where I'm occupying, you know, on my desk, things like that, you know, so obviously that had to be taken care of. Um, but, you know, moving on now, I had pretty much the same exact experience uh, much more recently. Someone had dropped by um, Petco to get me a birthday gift, and they didn't realize this, but when they brought that gift into my house, it actually had a bunch of feeder crickets in it, and some of them um, didn't make it out of, you know, the, the bag, but many of them did. And one night I'm in my bathroom and a bug jumps straight up towards my face. And I thought it was like a jumping spider or something. And so I was terrified and I began chasing it around with a hand towel. And just as I was about to land the final blow, I realized it wasn't a spider at all, but it was actually a cricket. And it was like kind of a brown cricket like this, just like, you know, the feeder crickets that you see, you know, in the pet store. And, you know, I stopped right there and I actually didn't, I actually didn't, uh, I actually didn't kill it. I just thought, you know, actually he might be a nice companion. Um, so I just left him there. Actually, I have about three crickets um, hopping around my house still and I'm just trying to enjoy the time that I have with them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, these guys came in totally unawares to me. I had no clue. And Satan is a master deceiver. He has been working at it for so long, and he caters things specifically to individuals. And it might sound like I'm making a lot of Satan's power and his ability, but later on in this chapter, we're going to talk a little bit about really just how much power Satan has. But, you know, he really does know how to target each of us individually. And we see this especially, right, with young people, right? They are continually bombarded. I mean, I think that this stands for, this goes for everyone in general, but continually bombarded, right? 
by ideas, philosophies, right? Vain things, traditions of men, things of the world, right? right? And um, <clears throat> this is uh, a song called In the Words of Satan, and it's a little intense, but uh, I uh, pulled out some of the lyrics. If you wanted to read the rest of the lyrics or listen to the song on your own, later you could. Uh, but I pulled out some of the lyrics for you to see, and I'm sorry if the text is a little bit small, um, but this song is called In the Words of Satan, and uh, this is how part of the song goes. Oh, and there is a lie that works for everyone, everyone. A lie that opens up your hearts so I can get me some. More of your free will. I'm winding you, winding you. Give me the control. That's why I'm telling you, selling you, anything, everything, appealing to your human way of being. And I use it all against you just to see your eyes, just to keep your eyes from seeing past the life you're living, past the moment you're in, past the pleasure of your sin or the cigarette you're smoking. Or I'll tell you, there's a heaven, but there's many ways to get in, keep you so confused that you stay bound to your sin, tell you that there are many ways to the same God, keep you distracted with your methods so your heart stays hard. I'll make you think you've got spirituality, but it's really just emotional alchemy, right? Now, Paul, right, he feels an obligation. He feels a responsibility to the Colossian church, right? And um, really, you know, as he's, you know, writing to them and as he's counseling them to beware of these worldly philosophies and these false teachings that are coming in, right, he has their best interest in mind, knowing, right, that Satan is a great deceiver and he's continually working, right, to bring people away from understanding of what exactly Christ is offering, right? Because think about it. Christ is offering the complete package. He's bringing all of salvation to you and offering it to you as a free gift. All right, let's read on now. Uh, Colossians um, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And actually, we can just stop right there. Right? This is kind of an incredible verse. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Um, I mean, right here, this is a testimony to Christ's divinity, right? And then also in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 3, I believe it says that right, Jesus is the express image of the Father. But also, I think that this verse is, verse is kind of pointing out something about the character of the Father, right? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? And think about how many misconceptions of the Father we see throughout Earth's history, right? I mean, um, and, and, and not just earth's history, but also misconceptions that people have about the Father now, right? But Jesus, he was a revolutionary. I mean, he changed um, the way that people looked at things. Well, he looked at things differently. He talked differently. He viewed people differently, right? Everything that he was doing was revolutionary for that time, and he oftentimes said some things that were very shocking to, to people. <laughs> um, and in all of the things that he was doing, right, he was doing that while continually maintaining a connection with his father to the point where he says, if you see me, you've seen the father. The things that you're seeing me do, right? This is the father working here in and amongst you. This is the Godhead expressed, right? To humanity, right? Okay, so continuing on now to verse 10. <clears throat> and you are complete in him. Amen. Can I get an amen for that? And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Um, none of us are worthy, but God commendeth his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Why did he die? To make us worthy, to make us complete in him. The trouble with those who say that they are not worthy is that they do not feel unworthy enough. If they felt without strength, then the power of Christ could avail them. The whole secret of justification by faith and life and peace in Christ lies in believing the Bible. It is one thing to say we believe the Bible and another thing to take every word in it as if it has been spoken by the mouth of God to us individually. Amen. If only we would fully recognize our unworthiness, right? We feel unworthy many a times, but if only we would really recognize just how hopeless and unworthy we are in and of ourselves, right? Maybe then God could do a great work in us, right? Now, a person that really struggled with this, and the person that came to my mind immediately when we're talking about unworthiness and realizing their completeness in Christ, right? A person that I think about is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, I mean, he was vexed, right? He was so torn up about his sin and his standing with God. And, you know, he had the acts of penance to, you know, committing his life, uh, committing himself to being, you know, a monk and living a solitary lifestyle, right? A very uh, humbling lifestyle. I mean, this was all his desperate attempt, right? His desperate attempt to be what he thought God wanted him to be, to be better, right? And it's so interesting. It's so interesting that a Bible, that the Word of God that was shackled to the walls of his monastery, right, really broke his shackles, right? Because the Word opened up the truth to him, and to the point where one day it just clicked, and he's kissing the stairs, he's kissing the stairs, he's going up, and he's once again doing something, right, to gain favor with God, right, to show God that he wants to be better, that he wants to do the right thing, and he stands up, and it just clicks for him. The just shall live by faith, and with joy he fled from that place and was forever changed. Great Controversy, page 152. In the contemplation of Christ, he had lost sight of self, he hid behind the man of Calvary, seeking only to present Jesus as the sinner's redeemer. A man that could only see himself for so long, right, all of a sudden had lost, com had lost sight of self completely, right? Had lost sight of self completely. And uh, now <laughs> he hid behind the cross, right? And that is what all of us are called to do, to hide behind the cross and to realize that we are complete in him. And, you know, this journey that Martin Luther began led him to many, many places. And one of the most, you know, incredible stories that you'll ever read of is, you know, the testimony of what uh, took place at the Diet of Worms. Man, imagine my, the shock and horror when I realized it's not pronounced worms, it's pronounced Worms, right? Um, when he is called before this group of prestigious individuals, of people that are way above his pay grade, right? And look at how he's dressed, right? He's just but a simple monk. And imagine how terrified he might be. And imagine how terrified he probably initially was, right? But I think that Martin Luther was able to once again hide behind the cross of Jesus, to lose sight of self. And he was able to deal a decisive blow to the enemy, right? In this moment. And he, and he continued, right, to deal to decisive blows to the enemy throughout the rest of his life, right? And this is, of course, all through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
all because he was able to lose sight of himself and because Christ was in him. Who is the head of all principality and power? And we were talking a little bit about how Satan's a massive deceiver. He's been at it a long time. He's very experienced and good at what he does. But friends, the reality is this, right? Jesus, he is the head of all principality and power. And really to feel like this um, in greater force, we can actually go further on if you want to look in your Bibles to verse uh, 15 of chapter 2. In verse 15 of chapter 2, it goes into more detail, and I'll throw throw it up on the screen here as well. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. All right? I mean, look at just how complete this victory is. Look at just um, how uh, how defeated, right, Satan is in the face of the victory that Jesus won at the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he also made a public spectacle of them. You know, um, it's interesting because it seems like it's just some of us here on this little blue planet that sometimes don't realize how, sa- how defeated Satan is, right? Because the rest of the universe, they realize and they understand, right? I mean, this was the center of it all for a long time, and it probably still is. And many an eye was continually fixed on this little blue planet, wondering how you, me, and those of times past, right, were going to decide how they, what decisions they were going to make. And you can imagine that one of the biggest moments, right, the biggest moment in earth's history was when Jesus came, right? His earthly ministry. Jesus is led to the cross. Jesus gains the victory at the cross. And then forever, from that moment on, right, Satan is viewed as a defeated foe. At the cross, it was shown that God's law is just, and certain privileges of Satan and his angels were revoked, right? Because there was no question anymore. There was no question, right? There was no question. But it seems like some of us here on this little blue planet still sometimes don't recognize, right, just how utterly, completely Satan has been defeated. Now, um, this uh, was a very common thing that you'd see in the time of Christ, and even before that, you would see military parades, processions, basically advertising the fact that they had won the battle, that they had um, utterly defeated the foe, right? And so you'd see these military processions, and you would see um, people walking behind, you know, in, you know, chains, right? The former soldiers of, you know, the opposing side, right? And these people would be paraded through the streets of cities, um, through towns, right? And this was a demonstration. We have completely and utterly defeated our foe, right? There's no more war because it's, it's been done. We, we've, we fought the fight. It's finished. And <clears throat> Paul, right, he looks at this, um, at this thing that armies, nations would do, and he views it as a really great example for what took place at the cross, right? And so we see this very similar language, right, used in verse 15. If you want to look at it again, I can put it back up here. Um, having disarmed, right, so taking away the, the uh, weapons, right, of the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So why is this important, and why is Paul mentioning this, right? Well, <clears throat> people uh, were coming in to the church uh, there, uh, the Colossian church, and uh, these false teachers, preachers, right, were kind of basically saying to the Christians there in, in the church, 
You know, we have experience dealing with evil spirits. You can rely on us to be able to deal with these servants of Beelzebub, right? And so <laughs> Paul, right? Paul just completely refutes and, um, and rejects, right, this, this idea. And he wants to put this forward before the believers in the Colossian church. The victory has already been won. You are complete in him. You do not need a middleman. You do not need some other person to come in and bring you to the place where you can say, flee from me, right? To bring you to the place where you can reject the temptations and the things that Satan's trying to continually introduce into your churches and your homes, right? You don't need that because there has been a resounding victory. The foe has been utterly defeated, right? And I pray that we would recognize this ourselves in our own lives, right? I pray that we would that we would really fully understand, right, that Satan is a defeated foe and that the battle has already been won. All right, so <clears throat> Colossians 2 verse 11. It's, it reads, <clears throat> In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So the people of this time, some of these words um, they understood, but the concept itself, the concept itself found in these verses must have been very confusing, right? Because many people understood the idea of circumcision. As a matter of fact, it was considered one of the most important things of that era in, the, in Judaism, right? Circumcision was considered the ultimate work. Actually, um, here in Life of Paul, chapter uh, 22, we see so great a circumcision that but for it, the Holy One, blessed be He, would not have created the world. It is as great as all the other commandments, equivalent to all the commandments of the law, right? So it's really, really interesting, but we see, right, in the Jewish religion, and this was something that was, you know, continually brought forward to the people by religious leaders, circumcision is so important, we literally put it on the same pedestal, right? We put it in the same place as the law that was handed down on Mount Sinai, right? Kind of crazy, kind of insane, right? So, you know, remember how we were talking about Jesus was a revolutionary, right? He enacted change. He brought in a lot of interesting ideas that really shook up how people viewed things. And I think that anyone really that follows in the footsteps of Jesus really honestly just becomes a revolutionary automatically, right? Because the things that they're saying are so, so counter culture, right? To what, to what the world, right, is constantly throwing at us, right? And so imagine the shock, right? Imagine imagine the perplexed faces, right, when things like this are said, right? This is Paul in Galatians 5, verse 6. In Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love, right? So this thing which is lifted up is so important, right? The ultimate work, right, is, dis is discarded, right? It's, it's viewed as something of no importance here, in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. Why does it say nor uncircumcision, right? I mean, it makes sense if it said, you know, avail, you know, uh, Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, circumcision doesn't, doesn't mean anything anymore, right? But why does it say nor uncircumcision? Well, so then the works of nothing and the absence of works is nothing. In Christ Jesus, neither works nor the lack of works avails anything. I think this is a really important principle, right, for us to grasp, right? I mean, it's really important, right, that we guard against legalism, right? And I think that 
every church, every denomination, right, struggles with, with this, you know. But uh, also, we look at those who find merit in what they don't do, that find merit in what they don't do, right? And this also, Paul just cast by the wayside as nothing, right? It is in Christ alone that our hope is found. It is faith which worketh by love. And if we go back, right, to this verse, Colossians 2 verse 11, right? I mean, this type of circumcision is not really something that people are really familiar with. What is the circumcision of Christ? What is the circumcision made without hands? Well, friends, it's this. It's faith which worketh by love, keeping your eyes centered on Christ. Your works avail nothing. The absence of your works avails nothing. It means nothing. Only Christ. Christ alone, the cornerstone, right? Complete in him, the just shall live by faith, <laughs> right? So going on now to Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Um, so what I take from these verses is that, you know, we really just, as, uh, as humans, right, we are forever connected and interwoven um, with God, right? Jesus came, he was God that took on flesh, and now since divinity was united with humanity, we are forever connected to Jesus, and his every experience is ours, right? I mean, we look at this verse. We were buried, he, you know, uh, we are buried with him in baptism. Jesus was baptized, and so he calls us also to be baptized, right? He was crucified, right? And we also are to die in him, right? And then Jesus was buried, right? And so also, right, we are to be buried. And, you know, we talk about baptism, right? Um, we are buried. The old man is buried, and then the new comes forth out of the water. Goodbye, old man. I don't want to see you again. Goodbye, old man, is a, a song that I used to listen to by Melissa Otto. Um, you know, when I was growing, when I was growing up, there's a song that she um, put out, um, uh, which was basically talking about how you're saying goodbye to the old man and you're putting on the new, right? But we are forever aligned with Jesus, right? He was buried, and then he was also raised. And when you're baptized, and when you're baptized right, you are also raised out of that watery grave, right? Unless, I don't know, how many of you, the pastor never let you up out of the water, right? <laughs> no, right? You were, you were raised out of that watery grave, even if the pastor did keep you under a few seconds too long, right? And, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, this also, right, speaks to physical death, right? We are died and we're buried, but there is a hope of the resurrection, right? Because Jesus himself was raised. Well, after Jesus was raised, what happened? Well, Jesus was lifted up, and so also we will be lifted up, right? He will take us home with him, and Jesus gets to heaven. He's glorified, right? He's glorified, and God says, this is my son, right? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Well done, well done, right? You've completed the work of salvation. And so Jesus, right, brings us with him, right? We are lifted up. We are glorified. We are given a victor's crown. The Father says to us, well done, right? Well done, thou good and faithful servant, right? And it, it's not just that that Jesus gives us, 
it's not just this that Jesus gives us. Jesus really, I mean, he, he gives us everything, right? Um, our own faith is imperfect. We need the faith of Jesus. Our own humility itself is not even humility, right? We need the humility of Christ. And of course, right? And of course, his righteousness, right? It must be ours, for our own righteousness is but filthy rags, right? So I pray that as we go to our homes this Sabbath, that we will recognize that the battle has already been won and that we are complete in him.